Blog Talk Radio. Yo, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about this. Welcome to the True Life Fridays radio program. I'm on the air with my wonderful, trusted, good friend, and all-around nice guy, Thomas Smith. How are you, Thomas? Hey, Leticia. What's going on? Hey, I am so glad that it's Friday. I am so glad that we get to have this broadcast. And we've got a lot going on this uh, this program that I think is going to knock everybody's socks off how wonderful it is. We're talking about some heavy, heavy things today, but these things need to be talked about, and I think that um, this is going to be a breath of fresh air for those who have been wanting to know exactly uh, how should we sort this out as ethical people of the world? How can we sort this crazy, crazy world we live in? And we're going to get into that today. But um, I'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, why don't you help us and help our audience know what this show is all about? Yes, thank you. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 says, I record this day against you that I have set before you, life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, 
choose life so that you and your seed might live. Dear Heavenly Father, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we give you glory, honor, and praise. Father, first and foremost, we want to lift up the family of Mr. Saltloff, who was beheaded a few days ago. Father, we are a a show that defends life, so therefore we send out prayer to the family. We ask that you comfort them in their time of grief, Lord. Father, we thank you for the platform that you have given us and the doors that you're about to open even more so that we might be able to take the message, the life message, to those who truly need to hear. We thank you. I thank you for Letitia. I thank you for Melissa. I thank you for the doors that you have opened. We say we love you, and we bless you, and we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. In the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that, Thomas. And, yeah, uh, in the the last time we had a live show, and between then and today, there have been a lot of developments in the news. Um, last time we were on, we were talking about the Mike Brown case here in Ferguson, Missouri. Just, I, I don't know, less than, less than 10 miles from where I live. I mean, it really is, I, I should say it's more like, 10 minutes from where I live and uh, I've seen I, it's a little bit like it's, it's hard It's hard for me to describe it with one generality what has happened because my focus there's, there's, the, there's the shooting aspect of what happened to Mike Brown his family, the grief the, uh, the anger at poli- the police department all that, that's, that's one thing then we have a whole other world that emerged from that, which is the world of the media, which I had described in a blog post that I posted up as this was an occasion where the media just ate this story up and smoked Ferguson and ate for, I mean, just, just put Ferguson, Missouri in a bong and smoked it. That's what they did. This was crack cocaine for journalists. Right. They used this story, this tragedy to promote themselves and and that to me I mean that was the shame of the media and they, they used the tragedy to try to make a name for themselves, to use it as somebody called it a networking opportunity <laughs> and one, one uh, the person that I talked about who had decided to leave Ferguson in shame had had said, you know, I witnessed one of my colleagues, the j- journalist, uh, use it as a networking opportunity, called it a networking opportunity, and wanted him to take a picture uh, with him and Anderson Cooper while they were out there. And people were throwing, you know, Molotov cocktails and getting shot by rubber bullets at the same time. This was a media food frenzy. It was it was crack for them. I mean, they could not experience anything, a greater high for a journalist to send to cameras on me, I'm talking 24-7 until this debacle is over, and whatever happens, I know that I'm going to come out on top. Shame, shame, shame. 
Meanwhile, there are real lives being affected by everything that's happened, good and bad. And that story takes second place. Anyway, I hadn't planned on going further with the Ferguson story other than to say the funeral is over. That in itself was kind of, you know, we could we could take half an hour and talk about that, but we're not. <laughs> we'll do that some other day uh, when we feel like, uh, you know, throwing bricks on our toes. And uh, we'll talk about that then. But now that the hoopla and the riots and the looting has all, and the, you know, and the funeral has all taken place, it's in the past, Ferguson has to pick up the pieces and move on. And who's going to tell that story? You don't see any more reporters camped out on the side of the street anymore. But you know what? Crack house is empty. What, are they, what do you expect them to do? Um, right. So that's the media for you. But what has happened, um, you know, my, while we were distracted, what happened before and what happened during and after, uh, you know, the rest of the world still moved on. And in, in, on ter- and I want to spend a couple of minutes, well, not a couple of minutes, but a few minutes, talking about um, the, the global crisis that has kind of taken the country by storm, which is the beheadings, as you mentioned while, when you were praying for the family of Stephen Sotloff, the beheadings of two American journalists. And, um, I, you know, we're going to have to do an entire show about um, all of this violence. I can see it in the future. I think that would be an excellent idea. Um, but we're just going to give you a preview of that right now and just talk about this as kind of a, you know, it's the focus on this incident right now, that this is the second of two journalists. The first was James Foley. And, Everybody seemed to be very shocked by that. I, For me, I was very disheartened. I was dismayed. It was shocking in the sense that I could feel um, the, the loss and the pain. It was like, you know, how Yoda feels there's a loss in the force, you know, a change in the force. It, that's how it felt. That we lost right. an, an innocent human being. Now, I'm not going to talk to you about, you know, he was, he was in, the, the, our, our reporter, James Foley, and Stephen Sotloff were in Syria trying to um, bring the, a, a smiley face, I guess, to the, the Syrian rebels and their cause. So I think that was a big mistake on their part. But you know what? They're humans, and they did not deserve to die the way they did, even though the people that they were trying to give a voice to ended up cutting off their heads. But that's right. beside the point. That that's a liberal, that's a liberal bone I need to pick with <laughs> on another day. But so America has been focused on, and now we lost. I mean, to me, we've been here before. This was uh, during the Bush administration. The first person that I heard about being beheaded by Islamic extremists extremists. I mean, um, was Nicholas Berg, and back then. The 24-hour news cycle wasn't as hectic as it is now, so I don't think it got as much public attention as it as today. I mean, that was that was two years ago. I mean, I'm sorry, that was 10 years ago. 
Um, and I remember when Nicholas Berg was beheaded, and I saw the video, I thought there was nothing worse on a political level, on a humanitarian level, on a threat level than that. Right. And this is this is my this, uh, on this issue. This is my complaint with the United States government. Doesn't matter who's the president. Is that our government didn't seem to take much notice. Our media didn't seem to take much notice, and our general society, our our neighborhoods, our street, everybody, and, and the general public did not seem to take a lot of notice. I spent the day after um, reali- watching the beheading. I didn't actually watch the, the physical act of beheading, but I knew what was happening to him because I saw enough. Um, the next day, walking around, looking at people's faces, wondering, do you even know what just happened? Doesn't this affect the way you see the world and the war we're, we're, that's being waged against us? How can our president and his administration turn around and say that we're not in a war with Islam when it's ever so clear that Islam is in a war with us? And fast forward to a couple of weeks ago and then this past week where we have it repeated repeated two more times exactly the same way with a clear threat that the Islamic extremists, let's just be not, you know, politically correct and call them that for now, are waging jihad against the United States. They have been. I mean, it would be stupid for anyone to say otherwise. They have been called jihad, holy war, for a reason. Because it's war. And we have this situation happening and slowly Americans are beginning to say, hey, we can't really, we can't really stand for that, can we? I, I don't think so. And we're looking to our president to make some sort of move here. And, and what does he do? Um, so in the overall picture of what has happened, I think our, the president has, it's like he seems to have been forced to deal with this, almost as if it were an annoyance. Now, right. I'll take, let me take from this point of view. I don't blame him, given what I know about his ideology. When, when someone tries to get in the way of your fundamentally transforming the United States of America with issues that just don't fit the liberal narrative of how the world works, I understand if you get annoyed. He only has the next two years to finish realizing the dreams of his father and beheadings and moral dilemmas and the harsh realities of the world just cramp his style. It's very hard. Now you have to understand, it's very hard to paint white Christian conservative Americans as the big bad bullies of the world when militant Islamic terrorists are ruining your vision of utopia as a world where white Christian conservative Americans are supposed to be the terrorists. It is a bummer. It's 
so runs against your agenda, and I understand he's annoyed. But he has to face the camera once in a while. And so he said first, and I'm not going to replay the audio because I think everybody's heard it uh, many times over. First he said we're going to um, degrade and destroy ISIS. Um, okay, that, that's nice. That's a nice plan. He doesn't say how. Um, he says we're going to get a bunch of people together <laughs> and do this thing. Let's do this thing. Uh, okay. Which is, I mean, it's better than saying I'm, I'm going to go golfing now. <laughs> or I've got a fundraiser to head off to. Sorry, folks. It's better than saying that. But then he, you know, minute, just minutes later, he says, um, we, we're going to try to make it so that ISIS is a manageable problem. That's a big difference. That's a big wide gulf from we're going to degrade and destroy. So a lot of reporters and a lot of congressmen and a lot of senators are now backing away from him and saying we need to take a stronger position. Even Joe Biden, Uncle Joe, came out and said we're going to follow to the gates of hell. I'm sorry. I'm not going to play the <laughs> going to play the Joe Biden theme song. I'll do it next week. Um, and, and and you know whatever that means, whatever that means. Um, so you know it's really hard to to find out what exactly our administration is going to do substantively. We have a clip, even even. Liberal Chris Matthews has something to say about that, and I think he points out something very, very good here. I don't think any president can take two weeks, every two weeks, another beheading, or whatever the sequence is going to be. And the president can talk, as Mike did well there, about how someday we'll get them, we'll encircle them, we'll put an alliance together against them, we'll coalition, we'll get them eventually. Eventually... That could be 60 beheadings from now. Well, right, and, and I think that that is part of the, the, the problem, the paradox that this administration finds itself in. You've got Joe Biden who's saying, we will follow them to the gates of hell. Well, some of us are asking, well, what does that mean? Does that mean boots on the ground? Does that mean uh, an upped a military engagement? Does it mean coalition forces? The definitional aspect of this, Chris, I think bothers people more than anything else. So whether you're war-weary or war-wary, what you want to know is what are you going to do given the crisis that's currently in front of the administration? It is boxed in the corner, and you and I have talked about this before, on its earlier uh, efforts to get out of Iraq, and now it finds itself having to circle back in through another, through another okay, door, if you will, and that's a problem, rhetorically and otherwise, for the president. And I think that was that was the voice of Michael Steele, uh, the former GOP chairman, and I think he's absolutely right about this situation. Now, hopefully, thankfully, there are more people that take this this more sane view of the world than the one pr- the president has inherited from Marx, Freud, and Darwin. It is the very view that even some of the more liberal members of Congress have been siding with now. And that the news and outrage about beheadings are becoming more frequent. So, but let's 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 keep in mind one thing. However, the beheadings have been going on for a while now. The beheadings of two journalists have been two Americans 
uh, in particular. But people have been dying by the sword for months. The city-to-city raids on Christians in Iraq, the forced conversions of Yazidis, and death if they don't, after having laid siege to them in the mountains in Iraq, and the news of the beheading of children, they fill my news feed on Facebook. And so you see, President Obama can't tell you he doesn't know about this. Because enough people in the world do. He's not ignorant. I'm not. I've, you know, I'm not saying that he's ignorant or he doesn't know. I mean, I, I would. Although I wouldn't be surprised if he came out tomorrow morning. You know, the White House press secretary came and said he learned about it on the news, just like he learned about every other internal scandal in this administration. It's kind of a standby argument for why he hasn't done anything about X, Y, or Z. But be, be sure that this has been going on for a while, and it has absolutely just gotten the silence of this administration. He doesn't care, at least administratively, that a huge, this humanitarian crisis that is happening, that is now roping Americans into it, he doesn't care that it's happening. He may care that it's happening while he's president. He may care that it is interfering with the domestic agenda that he has. And he may care that he does not look good in the way that he's handling it in the media and with foreign countries. I think just today there was a story that there was a phone that his phone call looking for a strategy, which he says he didn't have, with uh, the British Prime Minister David Cameron, uh, the, the news out of England said President, our, our president was, seemed tired and incoherent on the phone and seemed to, to giggle at this grave issue that they're trying to work out. Mm, is that how you build a coalition? Is that how you get people together and fight Somebody for which that you did not previously have a strategy? Hmm. I don't know. I think I can probably throw in a bunch of eight-year-olds in the room and they could do better than that. But just saying, that's my opinion. What do I know? I, you know, I only have eight-year-olds. <laughs> so I, I wonder about this humanitarian crisis and how, as Americans in, in this administration, we're going to live this down. How many reporters are going to die? You know that. Did you know that those two journalists are not the only hostages that ISIS has? No. They have British hostages. They have hostages from other countries as well. And um, not, you know, and I think they have other Americans as well. This is not going to end. And the sleepy way that our administration has been taking this is not comforting at the least. I think what people need to be prepared for is to see a lot more beheadings before something actually gets done. That's that's the way I predict this is going to go. And it is going to test the resolve of the American people. Are we now this is, this is the moral question that I'm going to throw out there. Are we going 
to say, oh, well, this is the way it is from now on. You know, this is this is the world we live in. You know, we're just going to try to get along and manage, as the president has said, manage this terrorist problem because, uh, you know, you know, we don't really want to put boots on the ground. We don't really want to engage in anything on a military basis. Uh, we just don't have a stomach for it for that. Or uh, we can we can say this is going to be a war that will not ever go away unless somebody is defeated. It's either them or us. And someone needs to grow a spine. Now, I don't know about us as an entire society, American society. I would like to hope that our American public has a spine. We just have to uh, reach down and find it. <laughs> and I, I think there's one there. I had always hoped and always assumed that we had one because we've had one in the past. Uh, these days, I'm not so sure, but I sure hope we grow one quick. That if we're going to take the position in this world, especially our government leaders and our political leaders, that we stand for rights rights not just the right we stand for rights of humanity then we're going to have to do something about an ideology yes you're right Thomas you had talked about this before that uh, Islam is a political ideology but it is also a religion it is both um, and it's because it's both it's why it's, uh, it, it is what it is that we're going to have to shed, first of all, we're going to have to shed this relativism, this moral relativism that we have, that all religions are correct, or that nobody right. has the truth, or that nobody is ultimately right, or that everybody is, all, is right. We're going to have to lose that idea that we've been taught by our culture, by television, by movies, by our teachers, um, ever since... Yeah, in the 20th century, we're going to have to lose this idea that 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 morals are relative, and that religion is just a preference and a personal choice. That there is no right and wrong. We're going to have to lose this idea of peaceful coexistence with contradictory uh, ideas. We cannot live in a world peacefully when a good portion of the world thinks that you don't have the right to live peaceably in the world. There is such a right. thing as a contradiction that nobody can live with. And we're going to first and foremost have to admit that. And then we're going to have to decide on which side of the equation do we belong. Do we belong on the side of the equation that says that anyone who is not a Muslim needs to convert immediately or be, be killed, beheaded, taxed to death, whatever, become a second-class citizen, live under an Islamic caliphate under Sharia law, and that women are the property of men. And, well, it's not quite as generous. as I mean, that's not quite accurate. Women are not considered simply property but that women have, uh, have belong to men, kind of like children belong to their parents. 
not as not as in a property sense, but as in a belonging sense, as in having a, a dominion over, um, control, having control over. Um, and we, well, would, would we live in that reality? Do you want to live in that reality? I think that we have come too far in, in the development of our country to go sliding and regressing back into a, a religion of the, of the 600s that says that. I think, you know, in, in the first century, we have in the establishment of a religion, Christianity, that surpassed that thinking where our ethics today come from that says that everybody is equal, should be equal under the eyes of the law. I think we have gone past in terms of humanitarian uh, understanding of life, ethics, the theology of the body, ethics of the body, and of the human spirit, of the human person. We're way beyond that. Why would we go backwards in time? You know, like, like liberals. Like I say, liberalism is, is living in a permanent opposite day. It's, it's backwards. But that's a, that's, a, that's a subject for a different day. Uh, I want to take a quick break uh, in a minute. We're up, upcoming this hour. We're going to talk about a really harsh subject, and that's sex trafficking, uh, which happens. In, I mean, in, in the context of, of a Muslim worldview, sex trafficking is per, perfectly Sharia compliant, but we're going to talk about it kind of in isolation today. I'd like to do uh, actually a greater show about uh, that aspect, but we're going to kind of uh, have a sampling of that today. I have a good uh, friend from the Covering House calling in telling us about what the Covering House is about, and also a couple whose daughter has been kidnapped and has been missing for almost two years now, um, who they suspect is a victim of sex trafficking. Uh, We're going to listen to their stories and uh, talk about this because it is a pro-life issue. So I'm going to take us out on to a little break, and we're going to come back on the other side and talk about that.
Hi, everybody. You're tuned to True Life Fridays with Letitia Wong and friends. Don't miss out. Today's great episode is brought to you in part by Lifeboat Coffee. 10% of your purchase at LifeboatCoffee.com will go directly to support True Life Fridays. Just remember to name True Life Fridays when you check out on the web. Hi, everybody. I'm John Lillis, founder and president of Lifeboat Coffee, America's pro-life coffee company. We support True Life Fridays, and we hope you will do. True Life Fridays. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Girls who either were already in desperate situations. Katie Rhodes knows firsthand she endured two years in the world of sex trafficking but got out and now helps fellow victims through St. Louis's Healing Action Network. She explained how women can get trapped. All of my stuff was taken away, my cell phone. Um, any way to get in contact with anybody that I knew. I worked out of hotels and clubs, and mainly hotels, and we had a $1,000 quota, so we had to bring home a $1,000 shift. It was a similar story for Matthews' alleged victims. Federal investigators say Matthews would force her victims to turn tricks in hotels along the interstate, drug them with ecstasy, and beat them if they didn't obey. The federal charges say Black Barbie took a hammer to one victim's toes and burned her with lit cigarettes. She'd allegedly steal their food stamps as a way to control them and threaten to hurt their families if they didn't stay. Rhodes says this arrest is just the tip of the iceberg of local sex trafficking. In the last two months, we've probably had between 20 and 30 referrals for services in the St. Louis area. Matthews faces life in prison if convicted of the crime. Girls who either were already in desperate situations. Katie Rhodes knows firsthand she endured two years in the world of sex trafficking but got out and now helps fellow victims through St. Louis's Healing Action Network. She explained how women can get trapped. All of my stuff was taken away, my cell phone, um, any way to get in contact with anybody that I knew. I worked out of hotels and clubs and mainly hotels. And we had a $1,000 quota, so we had to bring home a $1,000 shift. It was a similar story for Matthews' alleged victims. Federal investigators say Matthews would force her victims to turn tricks in hotels along the interstate, drug them with ecstasy, and beat them if they didn't obey. The federal charges say Black Barbie took a hammer to one victim's toes and burned her with lit cigarettes. She'd allegedly steal their food stamps as a way to control them and threaten to hurt their families if they didn't stay. Rhodes says this arrest is just the tip of the iceberg of local sex trafficking. In the last two months, we've probably had between 20 and 30 referrals for services in the St. Louis area. Matthews faces life in prison if convicted of the crime. Now, that was a, I had played it twice. I know some of you are going to point that out. Um, I had played that a little prematurely and then had to go back with our intro music and then play it again. So forgive me for playing it twice, but you get the story um, that, you know, that, that was a story here local in St. Louis. And this is being played out all over the country in, uh, in so, as many places as you can think of. I think I was doing some research about sex trafficking earlier this week and 
I have come across no less than, you know, just one Google search will pop up like at least 12 sites on the first page that all of them have extensive information and all of them are involved in exposing exactly what sex trafficking is, how prevalent it is in the United States, worldwide and uh, there's a huge background. We're going to get into some of that, but I wanted to well, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, with it with somebody that is intimately involved in trying to help individuals get out of sex trafficking. And um, just a little background that this is an issue first and, vol- and foremost for us on True Life Fridays Radio. Uh, something that I think doesn't get talked about as much as our other subjects, but they're linked. They, this is linked to everything else we talk about because there is an intrinsic uh, value judgment on women especially, females especially, uh, men as well, males, men, boys, as well as women and girls can be trafficked and used uh, for under used for sexual exploitation just as much as women are, but it is predominantly women. Um, There's a a huge value judgment on the intrinsic worth of the human being that allows this to take place. And by sex trafficking, I'm specifically talking about the use and abuse of human beings for, for sexual exploitation, for sexual, for sexual business making, however, prostitution, however you choose to uh, frame and define the issue, um, use of their bodies and not seeing them as human persons, but human product. And you know, our listeners know that this is the message that we try to send on this program, that it is a fundamental pro-life thing to talk about issues that have to do with the value of the human person, that we want to express an, a unified position that abuse of human beings, uh, aside from recognizing their intrinsic worth, is very anti-humanity. It's anti-human being. It's anti-life, however it comes out. And so with me today to talk about this aspect and uh, I'm really interested in talking about some of the ethical questions that go along with it. So I'm, a lot of my questions are going to center around that. Is Laura Farrar? She's from the Covering House, which is based here in St. Louis, and it is a it is a, a, an organization that tries to free women and girls, especially from sex trafficking. Welcome to the show, Laura. I am so glad that you're here with us. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm excited to be here, and we appreciate um, just your willingness to to bring light to this issue. Definitely, Ab- absolutely. Like I, I was saying, this is a subject that is right in line with everything else that we talk about on this program. Uh, yeah. We're extremely interested in ex- discussing and exposing what it on on an ethical level what it is that about some of these issues that make them so serious. And so right. sex trafficking is really one of those things. Yeah, definitely. So tell, well, you know, I tell oh, us a little bit about the Covering House. Yeah, so the Covering House is a place of refuge and restoration for girls that have been sexually exploited or sexually trafficked in the United States. 
um, the issue is vast. I mean, we could talk all day about statistics and um, information that we're seeing on the St. Louis side, but also just all throughout the United States. There is no question that this is a significant problem um, in the U.S. and here in, in St. Louis. Um, and so what we do at the Covering House is provide resources for these victims, um, specifically girls. We mostly work with girls under the age of 18, but if they're older than that or or younger and they need uh, uh, they need resources, we try to at least try to place them within um, other partnerships that we have. But we mostly work with the age range between 13 and 17. Okay. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, how – sorry, I lost my page there. Sorry. How, oh, uh, your website. <laughs> your website. Yeah. And, and certainly many websites can give all the stats and about trafficking and how serious this is across the board. But uh, please give us your top reason, the Covering House, the, the mission of Covering House, for the seriousness of it and why people ought to be concerned. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things, like I said earlier, is so we understand the issue. The issue of sex trafficking is starting to really hit the media, and you hear it on the news and the radio and in the newspapers. And so, you know, we could talk all day about that issue, and we could talk about, you know, even around the Super Bowl and, and that being a, a major event in the United States for um, for sex trafficking. But, you know, right. one of the things that, that nobody's really asking and the question that's not getting a lot of media attention is, what happens after these girls are rescued? You know, what happens to them when they're identified and law enforcement is able to step in and, and rescue them from the reality of this? Unfortunately, the answer is there's very little um, for them upon rescued. So, so there's really very limited resources available. And so one of the things that's important about the Covering House is that we see that huge gap. We see that there is limited resources, especially for children in the United States. Um, according to Shared Hope International, um, Ted Poe from a uh, congressional member in Texas commented about this pretty recently about that there's 236 beds available in the United States for children that are, are children victims in the U.S. Mm. for aftercare. That's a significant low number in regards to, you know, the U.S. Department of Justice identifies that there's 300,000 American children at risk. That's right. six times the St. Louis Bush Stadium. And right. So, right. so that's something that, that is hugely important to us is, is not just raising awareness. Um, that's important, obviously, but it's, but it's more than that. If awareness doesn't ignite movement, then what's the point of of us speaking about it you know we have to encourage people to to move and to be a part of this movement of, of providing resources and so i would say that is a big part of our mission is to not only just raise education but it's to provide resources for these girls when they are rescued or when they are when they do step out of this environment and so that we can say yes like we have a place that you can go we have counseling we have um, resources for you. So I would say that's that's our main focus. Okay. Yeah. If you if you just Google sex trafficking, you'll quickly find out this is a global problem. Wherever right. you go in the world, there will always be sex abuse, abuse and prostitution, forced or otherwise. Sometimes it's called child marriage or temporary marriage or even polygamy. It's it's mm. it's almost everywhere. It's a ubiquitous nature 
it's a it's a nature of the underbelly of civilization and and in some places it's perfectly acceptable you know in some of those cultures to use especially women to use women as sex slaves and that's what it is let's not you know mince words about that and so i'd like but i'd like to focus because of that on the ethical case for you know why the covering house does what it does why do you do what you do what's the motivation for that Right. Well, you know, like you said, it's it's a global issue. Um, Every two minutes, a child in the world is being prepared for sexual exploitation. Um, That's a lot. I mean, this whole segment, so we're going to talk for like 15 minutes, that's 30 children in our small window that are being prepared to engage in sexual activity. And so, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we have to understand the the vastness of it, but we also have to understand that that can infect, not only is it a, is it a world issue, but it's happening here in the United States. And and although there are significant need outside of the U.S., it's something that, that we have to understand here. And so, you know, what we do at The Covering House is combined not only um, our clinical components and understanding the importance of um, research-based models and therapeutic models, but also we have that spiritual component that comes into play, and, and we understand um, the importance of both of those and the understanding that these girls, especially that are coming at such a young age, coming out of, of these kind of situations, is they need um, a stable, safe environment. They don't trust people. Mm-hmm. They don't, um, you know, really understand how someone could be good in some situations. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we spend the first probably two months with each girl just trying to establish that safety before we ever really dive into their trafficking story or their story of exploitation Um, because it is such a component that requires a safe environment to really dive into that. Right. Um, I mean, what do you say to those people who believe that it, it may be a problem, but it isn't a problem that anyone can do significant things about. I mean, you'll hear right. sometimes people argue that this would go away if cities or states would just legalize prostitution, you know, the same way as they have done in Las Vegas. Right. Um, then, you know, abusers couldn't hide anymore. The government could tax them. People wouldn't need rescuing, et cetera. Um, you know, what do you say to, to that? Because I know that it, that's out there. Right. Well, you know, that's the thing is, is the issue encompasses so many different avenues. You know, you do have the, the legal component. And, you know, one of the things that we see in the United States especially is our need for harsher penalties, um, where you see girls that are engaged in, you know, drug trafficking can be a 32-lifetime sentence, where we were talking today about um, an individual that was caught with, prostituting 30 women and got like a six to 10 year sentence. Mm -hmm. And so there's a huge gap for beyond just, um, you know, education, aftercare, but there has to be a legal component that, that penalties are increased. Um, You know, when you talk about law enforcement and getting legalizing prostitution and all that component, you know, that is, that's a difficult topic because we see where, especially with, um, you know, prostitution being legalized, that gives a way for police officers to 
arrest the girl and provide resources for her um, to pull mm-hmm. her away from from her pimp and her perpetrator. And so, you know, it's a loaded question, and it's something that encompasses a lot of um, different sides, and it's controversial, and, and we could talk all day about it. Well, but sure. what's yeah. important is that people understand that the issue the issue is there. Like, what's the point of, of arguing about the logistics of it? We have to just come and band together and make positive change. And it starts with using your voice. It starts with, you know, using your ability and, and talking to your community and talking to your, um, you know, in your community of influence to talk about the issue and understand that it's happening. And it's not just affecting a certain, a certain demographic or a certain socioeconomic um, situation. It's, it's affecting – we have girls from – Obviously, the city, St. Charles, St. Peter's, Wentzville, O'Fallon, O'Fallon, Illinois. I mean, it's it's one of those issues that nobody's really immune to it. And mm-hmm. so for us to sit in silence and to think, oh, that's an issue that happens in East St. Louis, so that's an issue that happens in Cambodia, yeah, it does, but look in your backyard and, and realize that this is something that can really affect any family. Mm, yeah. Well, in just the couple of years that um, – that True Life Fridays has been around and paying close attention to the sex abuse of children and trafficking, I have run across several stories of how abusers and pimps cover up their crimes by taking girls who become pregnant to abortion facilities. Now, certainly, I think that is the opportune time for law enforcement to get involved and rescue not just one life, but two from this abuse um, in what ways, you know, do you think abortion and abortion clinics are complicit in this humanitarian crisis? You know, I think that there's there's two sides of every story, and so one of the things that we have to focus on is is what's best for um, the victim and and protecting her. And so one of the things that we've even talked about, and one of the things that we've seen is a lot of even abortion clinics that have been actually pretty significant in identifying some of these victims um, and have, but then you also have the other side that they're not. And so one of the things that we have to do as a community is raise education and, and be willing to go into those hard places and say, okay, this is what a victim can be identified as. This is what we have to understand um, is a component of trafficking because at the end of the day, what's best is identification because then you can provide the resources for the girl and possibly um, a girl that's pregnant. And so what we have to do and what we've even worked a lot on is working with the St. Louis Police Department and working with um, different education organizations so that we can go in and, and educate on how to identify because red flags are red flags and and a lot of people can fit under categories of red flags but mm-hmm. it's not the individual red flag that helps identification it's the link between them and so ultimately what has to happen is that education piece where people can understand how to identify and I'll tell you a story there was a situation um, that happened in a hospital in Washington, and it was actually a kind of a case statement that they were analyzing. And um, it spoke about how this girl went to this emergency room with lower back pain. And um, when she went to the emergency room, she wasn't allowed to speak for herself. There was an older gentleman with her. 
Um, she wasn't allowed to really actually have a physical examination. Um, she was just there to get pain medication for her back. And mm -hmm. what actually ended up happening is that they were um, able to later identify because she showed up in the emergency room again and actually later passed away in the emergency room um, mm -hmm. that she had, like, makeup sponges in her vaginal cavity and was actually um, – they were wanting to prevent pregnancy and menstruation. And so had the doctor been able to identify not just that she was with an older person and maybe that she had physical signs, but it was the link between all of them. And once you, like I said, once you give education, that can ignite a big change because it can help identify these girls and provide resources for them. But along those same lines, we have to understand that just as important as education and prevention, we have to be able to provide resources because not a day goes by that we're not hit with the same question of, okay, now what? So mm -hmm. they've been identified, they've been rescued, and now they're sitting in juvenile detention centers waiting for us because we're full or we, you know what I mean? And so that has to be a priority too. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm trying to reach for, there's a, there's a huge cynical side to me that says you know there's a huge there's a there's a segment of society that only looks at women and girls and i'm i know i'm generalizing but if we look in the street and you see just you know a random person on the street you could you could imagine that because you don't have any connection to that person in particular that that person can be a victim of of exploitation can be kidnapped can be exploited can be prostituted and and it's it's so much more than it has no connection to me, but you know this 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 is just this kind of thing happens to people, and uh, where is the fundamental pull, you know, to say I people don't shouldn't live like this because you know where where does that you know kind of exist in the mission of the covering house and because I'm, I'm, I'm looking you know where is that that fire underneath everything that you know sends you on your way and says hey let's do something about this right you know i think for me it was something that at the beginning i heard a lot of statistics and i had heard a lot of reports and, and knew that the issue was vast but for me what changed it and what kind of ignites me every day and, and gives me strength to kind of go on in this field um, <clears throat> was the first day I actually stood face-to-face -face with a girl that had experienced total, de like, the, the hands of total depravity um, that has experienced, you know, um, mankind kind of at its worst. Mm -hmm. And when I spoke with her, I, you know, she came into our out client program and, and there were several of us talking with her one morning and it's so crazy because when you talk about this issue the first thing that that I think we kind of get stuck on is this idea of her being a victim and she is like absolutely has been victimized but beyond her victimization she is a survivor and she is strong and she is courageous and she mm -hmm. is beautiful, and she is hopeful. And so for me, it's, it's seeing a strength that I cannot imagine. The, um, earlier this week, we had a girl that um, her perpetrator was sentenced to um, federal prison. And when we got a chance to talk to her a little bit about how she was processing that, 
she looked at us, and, and when I say us, she looked at our, our clinical staff. I do not do clinical work. Um, and mm-hmm. she looked at one of our clinical staff um, and said, with the purest of heart, um, I hope he gets help there. And for me, that is the most beautiful example of grace, where she, in her total justification of being, like, she could be angry at him. She has the right mm-hmm. to to say whatever she wants to an extent, but but yet instead she looks at him with grace. And I think that's a good reminder for all of us, like someone that has been totally wronged by someone um, has that, that beautiful example of, of grace in her heart. And so I think that's what I know encourages me and encourages a lot of our staff is how real these girls are. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting to be a part of really to be a bearer of their story and to get to talk to you and your audience and and just to share a glimpse right. of of who and these girls are. Definitely. That, that's a that's a great story. I you know I love how that you express that. There's um you know her this for some of these um, women young girls that have been trafficked they're able to see kind of beyond their own circumstances to you know the life of another person that that's. Uh, getting legal legally what they deserve but also seeing that that person uh has something lost and 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 a hole in their life that needs to be filled um but it says on the website for the covering house that um it is not a faith-based organization Mm -hmm. and um so what you know what kind of advantage i guess maybe because because i'm personally i think the foundation for a lot of the compassion that is shown for women that have been trafficked is through you know a kind of a faith understanding of life um is there an advantage to not being a faith-based organization absolutely you know one of the things that you have to understand and, and we all have to understand is that a lot of these girls um and in some cases have been victimized by the hands of of someone that might be considered a person of faith. And I'm not saying that happens all the time and I'm not condemning, but I'm talking about it's, you know, if you experience and you work with a child that's experienced um, force and something that encompasses a lot of shame, um, when you present Christ to them, you want that to be something that does not come with strings attached. Do you know what I mean? Like something that um, is very freeing, and they can understand God's love in a very um, shameless way. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that's important to us, and, and a part of our curriculum, and a part of what we instill in these girls is, is showing the love of Christ th- through our character, through who we are, through how we care uh, for these girls. And numerous times have we, why are you? why do you love me the way that you do? Why do you care for me without strings attached why do you you know why are you so happy like why do you have that joy that i'm missing and so being able to engage in those conversations and truly be um showing god's hands or being christ's hands and feet in the community for me personally has been great to to have that be a part of our curriculum absolutely is that a part of it but it's something that um we have probably more access to these girls by not being because you know, our standards are there as well. And so we've been able to encompass and include that clinical component um, and understand the importance of both. 
Okay. Um, well, our time is almost up. Um, if listeners who want to know more about the Covering House and the, survive, the services you provide, where can they go to find out more? Yeah, if they want to go to the T-H-E Covering, C-O-V-E-R-I-N-G, House, H-O-U-S-E, dot org, um, we have all of our website information. So that's our website. You can look into volunteering, um, getting involved, getting your church community involved, um, donating, anything like that. Um, we would love to connect with you and, and explain more. We um, are in the process of making a, a big move here in a little bit with just with our clinical components and, and really our services. So watch our Facebook page, social media for a big announcement here in the next couple weeks. Cool. Very nice. It was uh, Laura Farrar from The Covering House here in St. Louis. Thank you for being on and sharing uh, all the information that you've had with us and answering our questions. Hopefully we get to have you on again uh, when we revisit yeah. this, and hopefully, um, very hopefully, we're, we're going to spend more time uh, talking about what, what people can do to help uh, women who are being sex trafficked, especially women, but all yes. people. Yes, yeah, definitely. All right, great. Well, thank Thanks you for having me on. Thanks. Yeah, great. Bye. Bye. And we're going to uh, take a short break here, and uh, on the other side of the break, we actually have an example that is possibly of a of a sex trafficked individual, and they, this person is missing. And so we'll be talking to um, her parents, uh, the parents of Phoenix Colden, um, who has been missing for oh a couple of years, almost a couple of years. We're going to come back and talk to uh, her parents after the other side of the break. So go away. We had a whole plan that sold abortions, and it was called sex education. Break down their natural modesty, separate them from their parents and their values, and become the sex expert in their life so they turn to us when we would give them a low-dose birth control pill they would get pregnant on or a defective condom. Our goal was three to five abortions from every girl between the ages of 13 and 18 multitudes of people that have been hurt by abortion. It's just unfathomable. That abortion is really, to me, the ultimate exploitation of women. It is so shameful and secretive that many women don't tell anybody that they've had an abortion. They won't say anything for 20, 30, 40, 55 years. They're so traumatized. Silence. The U.S. Senate report states Physicians, biologists, and other scientists agree that conception marks the beginning of the life of a human being, a being that is alive and is a member of the human species. There is an overwhelming agreement on this point in countless medical, biological, and scientific writings. Planned Parenthood is expanding now. They're building gigantic abortion clinics. 
in anticipation of socialized medicine. There's a lot of money involved. We never would take personal checks. We always encourage the ladies to bring cash. Why is that? So, a lot, you don't have to report cash, friend. When you're fighting for your life, you need to know what you're fighting for. And if what you're fighting for is life, how do you destroy a life in an effort to fight that fight? I'm fighting so hard to save myself that I'll kill someone else to get that. I recognized I'd been involved in the death of 35,000 babies. And the truth has really come out about what abortion does to women, let alone the unborn baby, our dead babies. It will be over. You are listening to True Life Fridays Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network on a true radio system of shows uh, that is every single day something you can enjoy. The number to call in if you have a question is 760-542-3907. We ask that if you'd like to call in that you please do so to that number. And if you have any questions, let us know about the subject matter that you want to talk about. Um, We are in the middle of talking about this problem in America that is just as big as as any social problem that we have experienced. Uh, And that is sex trafficking of mostly young women and girls. Um, Certainly men and boys can be trafficked as well. They can be exploited and and made to be sex slaves in a society where we don't recognize this as a, as a legal thing. Uh, thank God that we don't, but it's still happening. And we're going to get to that analysis uh, at the end of our next interview where we wrap this up. But I want to show, share with our audience um, a story that a good friend of mine here in St. Louis has um, helped me to to find out because I did not know anybody personally who could possibly be a victim of sex trafficking. And as yet, we don't know for sure, but all the signs point in that direction. With me on the line is uh, a dear father, and um, his his wife is also... um, here, I think. <laughs> um, they live here in St. Louis, where I live, and their daughter, Phoenix, has been missing for nearly two years. And so I want to welcome Lawrence Colden. Would you uh, say hi to our program? Thank you for being on our show and to share your story. Hi, Leticia, and thank you for having me on your show. And uh, Leticia Phoenix has been missing now for two years and almost nine months. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it's it's yes. Was uh, 2011 was it or 2012? 
2011. December 2011. 18, 2011. Okay. Yes. Right. Yes. So please tell us, tell us the details of your daughter and and her story of how she's gone missing and your your efforts to find her and what is what is well, going on. Okay. She left our driveway uh, December 18th of 2011 at approximately 3 p.m. And we haven't seen her since. Uh, that day was a, a very, oh. uh, very nice day. It was a Sunday. And um, she left home, and she did not tell us where she was going. I saw her back out of our driveway, and I didn't think much of it. I felt she was maybe going to her girlfriend's house or to the corner store or something. But that wasn't the case. So we, we haven't seen her since then. And um, we did not know that the same day she left, two and a half hours later, her car was found about 21, 22 miles away from our home in East St. Louis, Illinois. We lived in, we were living at that time in St. Louis County, Missouri. And mm-hmm. the car was found that same day in East St. Louis. And it was not, we were not notified that the car had been, had been found. And we really didn't know the car was uh, in, the, in the tow yard for two weeks. We we were notified that the car was in the, in the tow yard on January the 1st, I believe it was. So she had been gone two weeks at that point before we could wow. find out where her car was. So we lost two weeks of investigative time. Uh, right. Yes, not knowing that they had, the East Coast Police had had her car towed. The uh, <clears throat> the day the day that she left, um, we 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 waited until the next day, the nineteenth, before we we reported her missing to the St. Louis County Police Department. And that first day, the officer that came out to take the report, he wouldn't take the report because he, when he found out how old she was, he said that she had a right to go missing. Hmm. And he did not he did not take the report. Um, the next day, we called uh, some other departments, state police and, and, and uh, things like that, and um, spoke to some uh, officials in the state police department, and they told us that he, was, he should have taken the report and for us to call the St. Louis County Police Department again, and hmm. we did. And they sent another officer out. And this time it was a lady officer, and she took the report and, and promised that she would um, send the report up line to the Missing Persons Bureau. And, and in, the, in the meantime, uh, the officers were running Phoenix's license plate, and they were not coming up with any kind of hits. They could not find her car in the system anywhere. It, it didn't show it had been towed, was in an accident, or abandoned anywhere it's because the people in East St. Louis had not uploaded it to a system so hmm. they could not find it so I believe it was that Wednesday we received a call from the missing persons bureau in St. Louis County Police Department and uh, they also started to run her license number and they also could not find find that vehicle and um the 
chief of police, well, well, the captain of the St. Louis County Division that we were living in, was on vacation at the time that Phoenix went missing. And I believe a couple of days later he returned. He came to our house to find out exactly what had happened. And um, we told him what had happened. And uh, the police officer who first came out to take her, to take the uh, report, he didn't tell the truth. He told the um, police captain that things had only been missing for a couple of hours when he got out to our house to to take the report. But she had been gone 24 hours when he got mm. there. And um, the police really didn't take this seriously until we finally found out where her car was two weeks after she went missing. That's when they assigned detectives to her case to try and find out where she where she where she was. Um, and they, they, they actually assigned two of the best detectives that they have in uh, St. Louis County to her case. But okay. that didn't happen that didn't happen until after we found where her car was. Right, right. Yeah, and by then they, it had been it had been two weeks. She'd been missing two, yes. for two weeks. Yeah. And so so that so since they found the car, what were they able to uh, find out? Nothing really. When they got to the car, the car had been moved around the impound yard for for two weeks. Um, they said that they well, they didn't tell us what they did to the car if they had dusted for prints mm. or anything. When we got the car back, I believe it was that Wednesday or Thursday of that week of the first week in January. We saw fingerprint dust on the driver's side door, but that's mm-hmm. all we saw. And we got her car back, and we uh, cataloged everything that we found in the car at that time. And neither the East St. Louis Police Department nor the St. Louis County Police Department cataloged, tagged, and bagged what was in that car when she went missing. Hmm. So my wife and I had to do that ourselves. We cataloged wow. everything that was in that car ourselves. So you can see how seriously they took this situation. I don't think yeah. it was that serious. <laughs> yeah, you know. Not that seriously. I mean I, I the minimum I would have I would have think that thought that they would um have examined the car seems to be more a little more closely than that. Right. Mm-hmm. And has this been has this been their attitude with you since then? Well, the two detectives that was assigned to the case uh, was reported to us that they were two of the best detectives that St. Louis County has. So I think at that point they began to take it more seriously because they assigned these two detectives to the case. And I truly, truly believe that these detectives tried their best to find where who who had Phoenix, who has Phoenix, or where Phoenix uh, was being held at the time. And um, even though we have not found out today either one of those things, I truly believe that these detectives tried their best to to find out. And they were replaced uh, toward the end of, of December, toward the end of uh, 2012, I believe, these two detectives were replaced and... Uh, uh, some other detectives were assigned uh, to the case in their place. 
the first two detectives was a man and a woman, and uh, they both were Caucasians. And the second set of detectives that were assigned to the case were African Americans. And since that point, we were introduced to two detectives that were African Americans, but we've only been in contact with one. Only one has been uh, basically the lead detective on the case. Okay, so since then, has has there been any progress in finding out any information? Has this, is are they still investigating, or have they stopped? Well, they, it, it is supposed to be at this time, and a still open investigation, an ongoing okay. investigation. Uh, they tell us that they've exhausted all leads and they have no new leads, but the investigation is still ongoing. Okay. And any any leads uh, that they that come into them, they will uh, run those leads down or investigate those leads. But it is an ongoing investigation. Okay. So tell me a little bit about um, your suspicions. When did it become something that crossed your mind that she was kidnapped and not simply, you know, missing on her own accord, but that she had been um, forcibly removed from her vehicle and leads you to suspect that something has happened to her? Well, we know that Phoenix had everything that she needed in this world to live on and most of the things that she wanted we never gave her everything that she wanted but she had everything she needed and and quite a few of the things that she wanted um and we could not figure out any reason why she would want to leave home on her own Mm -hmm. and why would she why would she leave her vehicle and uh her personal belongings in that vehicle and take it 21 miles away from home and just leave it in the middle of the street. Uh, did, did someone okay, so, so back up, back up. How, do you, how did you know that her car and her belongings were abandoned? Well, the, the to, to our knowledge, there was a, a 911 call placed to the East St. Louis Police Department, and the officer that responded said that he determined the vehicle was not stolen, so he had it towed. Okay? When he had the vehicle towed, he was supposed to notify the county where the vehicle is licensed so that the police in that county could notify us or ask us, do we know where our vehicle is? It was her car, but it was in my wife's name to say for insurance purposes because she was 23 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was fully licensed and insured. So the insurance papers were in the car. The license tags were there on the on the car. All he had to do was trace the tags, call the county, and they could call us and ask us, do we know where our car is? And we would have known immediately that the car had been abandoned. Did she take the car over there and abandon it? I don't think so. Hmm. I don't think she had any reason to run away. And so were her 
her personal belongings in the car, her purse, her identification, um, all those type of things? Yes, her purse was in the oh. car, her identification, uh, her reading glasses, and uh, quite a few other items were in the car. As a young lady, uh, uh, going back and forth to school, you, uh, you tend to accumulate things in your vehicle that you use probably on a daily basis. And um, those things were in the car. The county police, wow. they, still, they have her purse right now. Uh, oh. We have her glasses because the glasses were still in the car when we got the car. Uh, and we have all the other personal effects that were in the car when we when they finally turned it over to us. Right. Was there a phone or any way to to, to know? We have never found her found her phone. Okay. The phone has not been used since I okay. believe at one seventeen p.m. on that Sunday. Okay. Yes. Wow. And, wow. So yeah. I mean, this is certainly you know it it will suggest that she didn't um, leave leave her family, leave you and your wife, uh, you know, without, on her own. And so, um, so we bring up this idea because we're talking about sex trafficking. This is uh, one Uh of the possible things that has happened to her. And so what have you done? What have you and your wife, uh, tried to do since she's been missing to try to locate her and, and, you know, what, what has come of it since then? We have traveled to different parts of this country, uh, north, south, east, and west, following up on clues and sightings that people have said where they've seen Phoenix. We, they've seen Phoenix here. Or they've seen her there. Uh, these are these are, are people who feel that, that they have seen Phoenix. They, mm-hmm. These are people who really don't know Phoenix but have seen her on television through the news media or through uh pictures on the internet and Facebook or through flyers and palm cards that we put out and they will call us and think that they have seen our daughter and mm-hmm. uh they're they're sure they're sure of, of, of that they've seen her and we will take a trip to make sure to see if that's her or not. And uh, we've been to the west coast, uh we've been on the east coast, we've been down south. And we've been parts um, and, uh, up in the uh, upper Midwest and, and so forth. So we've been to quite a few places in this country uh, just trying to, uh, just following up on leads that that would come to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are things where the police would say, well, why, we don't think there's anything to that. But for us, we have to be completely sure. Sure, sure. Well, if as as parents, I wouldn't expect anything less uh, than yes. than you're trying to just do everything that you can. And so, uh, you know, from what I hear, you know, the possibility of your your daughter having been fallen victim to a kidnapping effort, you know, that's certainly out there. And it is. And you know, I'm I'm my heart is heavy for you and your wife and I fear you know I fear the worst for her I I hope that you know she is found I hope that somebody recognizes her picture and I just want to take a minute right now to let our listeners know that Phoenix's uh, poster and her photos are right now on the cover page for uh, True Life Fridays radio um, the show right now on our show page 
we're going to cross post it onto the True Life Fridays radio page on Facebook, okay. our Facebook page, and on our um, our website. And um, so we're we're going to ask that anybody who can just take a look, take a look at her photo, and try to see if you have ever seen this young lady um, and have a clue. There is a number. There's a number on that poster. And one is to you, <clears throat> excuse me, one is your direct phone number. Yes. And the other phone number is to um, is somebody. St. Louis County Police. St. Louis uh-huh. County Police. Okay. Yes. And so you've asked that anybody that, has any information or knows anything or has found anything, um, yes. please contact St. Louis Police Department. And, and so, and, you know, and Atisha, if they don't if they don't feel comfortable calling St. Louis Police Department or St. Louis County Police, just call us. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. And the the number is on the poster. All the information. I would encourage everybody to look at. Now you have a Facebook page. <clears throat> That's dedicated yes. to information about her. And what is yes. that Facebook page called? And that is Missing Phoenix Colden. Okay, and that's Phoenix, like the city of Phoenix. Yes, it is. And it's Colden, C O L D O N. That's correct. correct. All right. Correct. Wonderful. And just take a minute, look at her photo, check your memory to see if you've seen any anyone that looks like her at all. It only takes a moment. Uh, I really, I, I hate to share stories like this because it's so painful, mm-hmm. but at, yeah. at the same time, somebody's life depends on this. And, um, you know, it's, and it's hard not to want to get involved because it happens, and it's tragic every single time. There is, is no good that happens from this, and we want, I want to see a family reunited. And I want to see a missing young woman returned um, to her life. Yes, Leticia, may so, I add something in here, please, just a absolutely. moment? Absolutely. Okay, on TV1, Find Our Missing, they did a series uh, in, in January of 2013 on Phoenix, Mm-hmm. There is a there's a page there. Um, find I'm missing. Share your theories, and they can click on her on her page on find I'm missing, and they can share their theories as what they think happened. Okay. So if anyone has any information that they don't want to contact the police or anything, go there and share your theories. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'd like to encourage. This is this is something that we do as True Life Fridays Radio. Um, we don't. This is not agenda pushing for us. This is actually real people, and mm-hmm. um, so we we want to have anybody who is you know within the sound of my voice to be able to just take that minute, take that five minutes, look at the websites. It doesn't. It, it's not going to change your life, but it may change. These people's lives may change Phoenix's Absolutely. life and save hers. And we we hope and we pray for you and your family for for the best outcome. I know two, almost three years is is three years too long it without is. your daughter. 
And I hey, can only imagine the pain. Yes, Thomas. Let me jump in here for a minute sure. because sitting here listening to the story from the I, – I heard from the beginning when the gentleman was talking about how the police officer lied and said that she had only been missing for a few hours instead of the actual 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And what – what kind of hit me, Letitia, because you know what we do on this show. We keep it real. So I'm about to keep it real. It's really sad. It saddens me to realize that quite possibly had this young woman been a celebrity or not black, there probably would have been more of a priority put on her well-being. Our country has digressed to the point that you have police departments doing that subconsciously. And you know me, we don't play the race card here, but it's kind of, that kind of, it struck me and it hit me really hard in that this young woman, still three years later, it doesn't seem to me that um, that a priority is being put on finding her. And here's the question that I have. Because mm-hmm. to me it sounds like to this kind of reinforces what I'm thinking. Why did the police department have to you have to remove two of their very best detectives who were white to put two black detectives because from the sound from the sound of listening to the testimony, this gentleman and his wife didn't care what color they that the detectives were. They wanted their daughter back. So it sounded right. to me like the police department played politics. I'm sorry for ranting, but I'm a little ticked <laughs> off. I I think I think all of us have had those thoughts. Um, certainly, you know, a couple of months ago when I sat down with um, Lawrence and Goldia, um, Gold Colden, and learned about their story, there were a lot of these questions, and I know I wasn't the first person to ask them. And I think, you know, we're we're past the point, you know, with this story of asking questions. We know we won't get an answer to on that topic. Right. And I know that you're, you want to ask the question. I want to ask the I think everybody wants to ask the questions. Um, but is there, is race a factor here? I can't say that it isn't. But we don't have any definitive, you know, proof of that. I think, uh, you know, and certainly in, in almost three years, um, Mr. and Mrs. Colden have, have, you know, run that, that wheel all the way around. <laughs> yes, we have, um, but we like you said, we really don't have any definitive proof of that. But I like right. I like you said, Thomas. I truly and truly believe that those uh, first two officers tried their best at, at to do their best at what mm-hmm. what they do, and they tried their best to find our daughter. I know that I believe that in all my heart. Mm. But they were taken off the case too soon, I believe. Mm. I believe they still know some things that 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 we are not 
privy to. Right, right. Um, Yes. So, you know, there's 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 no easy answer. Why, you know, why can't they talk to these these uh, investigators? What these? I mean, we could go all day. And and I, I wish we could. And I think one of these days that we will because but I don't have those answers. And they haven't been provided to the Coldens, and I really doubt that the police are going to provide them anytime soon. Um, and it's very important that we we don't forget these questions. But for the moment, yeah. uh, for the yeah. moment, we got to wait until something happens um, because there really is is it's just a waiting game at this time. Um, yes. We need something to happen real soon. This is right. this, this is um, this is like too long. It's yeah. been it was too long right. after the first day. Matter of fact, my wife is like uh, uh, she's in pieces almost. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's just how bad it is on her, and it tears me up to see her like this. Right, right. So we um, this is these are one of the cases that you know True Life Fridays is going to come back to uh, every once in a while and to see if there's any okay. progress um, in your case. And we're going to pray uh, because we, we are a faith-based organization, and I'm not afraid right. to say that. And we Good. pray for the best outcome and for reuniting your family with, uh, yes. with each other. We do. And Mr. Colden, one more thing. Yeah. I know mm-hmm. I know you said that your your wife is broken up on this uh you know, by this situation and that's yeah. understandable. But the best thing that you can do, which is from sound like you're doing it, is continue to be that strong sh- shoulder and be mm-hmm. her spiritual encourager. You know, okay. when when yeah. you get hit like that you know, just continue to remind there, hey, the Lord Jesus has us, no matter okay. how dark it may seem. Because, yes. you know, I appreciate you coming on. Um, Letitia didn't even tell me about this aspect, and <laughs> okay. I'm just floored by this. <laughs> and um, whatever we can do, in fact, Letitia, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, you know, I have some ideas, but, We'll talk about that later because we have to raise aware, more awareness because he's not, the, You're right about not the only family of color. And I'm not no. just talking black. I'm talking Hispanics and right. other minorities that this happen, is happening to. It's like their cases don't get much priority. And you know what? Life is precious. If we are going to say that we are followers of Jesus Christ, we better look at life the same way Jesus does, and he is no respecter of persons. That's right. And and so, Mr. Colton, you continue to be that strong man of God that you are, and you continue to just hold up, you know, place your wife before the throne of God and encourage her. Thank you, Thomas. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Leticia. Thank you, sir, and we will talk to you again real soon. Okay, anytime. I appreciate it. All right. Wonderful. Have a good afternoon. Thank uh, you. Please, we'll be in prayer, and we ask you to also. Thank you. All right. Have a good night. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And here's the thing, Thomas, and, you know, I don't, I don't like to be angry in front of somebody who's mourning, uh, 
Uh, and but but there is a lot that you know bridging our two stories together. Um, I I just have a difference in op- of opinion about how some how how I don't even have words. That's how awful this is. How how this is being handled. How sex trafficking and poss- even the possibility of sex trafficking is being handled. Right. Um, exactly. I I the reality is I mean as as we're not we're not a stupid bunch of conservatives who can't admit uh, when the realities. I mean that's one of the things that we do as conservatives when it's happening. I like to call it out. I just don't like people making things up. So here we have a clear example of a, a victim of of some kind of kidnapping. I think this is the most accurate way of describing it with this with a deep suspicion that she's being sex trafficked or murdered or something, something awful happened to her. And uh, we have a police department that is dragging its feet. I mean, when I was listening to them talk to me about this story a couple of months ago, it was really hard to understand how uh, a police department can be, allow such negligence and i'm not saying it's grossly negligence negligence but how much how much they affected um the evidence that they could gather was negligent enough it was negligent enough two week two weeks with nothing that is that that is mind-boggling it is absolutely mind-boggling and so it, 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 I feel for the parents whose hands are tied here, they have nothing. They, I mean, they want something tangible. Everybody does in order to point the way to finding their daughter. And I can't imagine being in their place because I, be, I would be in pieces. I would be in pieces for the rest of my life if one of my children had gone missing this way. I don't know what I'd do. And, and and then going, let, let's take this story and then in the background where we have our, our covering house guest um, talking about what they do, kind of helping women, uh, their lives out of this um, victimhood and surviving such an evil thing happening to them. Part of my mind is racing to say, how... Can this be improved? Um, and I'm rambling at this point because what I really want to say about the covering house is I understand their point of view. I understand our guests' point of view, uh, especially about not being a faith-based organization. You know, I thought she gave a pretty decent answer to not putting uh, the Christian faith because I, I know that this this is actually a a considered a ministry of a church but it's 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 organizationally it's independent from the church and it's not considered a faith-based organization where they want to play that low key um that and there's part of me though I, I searched for it and i searched for it and i searched for it and i didn't find what i was looking for but what i wanted her to say was that the fundamental value of a human being, why we want to rescue women and children and anyone who's been sex trafficked or exploited 
is because people were not made, created. They were not created to be tools for another human being. We are not things to be used. We are not um, product. We're not human product. That's the fundamental pro-life view. And so sex slavery, sex trafficking, sexual exploitation of the human person is just using them for a, a, as a product, as a body to be exploited and where you can make money off of a customer who will use that body. And so what makes this kidnapping case so, so in my face, it's in my face, that it brings the pain to the forefront. It's happening. You're right. It's happening all the time. And it's not just happening in the black community or the Hispanic community. I actually think, you know, in, in light, you know, I meant to bring this up earlier, but I want to bring it up now. In light of the fact that the the big story breaking out of England right now, Great Britain, is the 1,400 children, mostly girls, that have been exploited since the 1990s uh, by Pakistani men. We won't name what their religious affiliation is, but I think we can all guess. And they were allowed to be exploited there were multiple times where law enforcement were contacted to try to put an end to the sex trafficking that went on there for years. But instead, law enforcement and bureaucrats decided that they were better off being politically correct. And in effect, they, they did nothing to save 1,400 plus young girls and women, because they were afraid to name the suspects who were Pakistani. They were not allowed to say, and this comes directly from the news articles, they were not allowed to characterize them as Asian. Now, I'm an Asian. You can say Asian. (laughs) I don't understand why that is such a hard thing to do. If they're Pakistani, they're Asian. If you're black, you're black. If you're African, you're African. If you're Middle Eastern, you're Middle Eastern. If you're white European, you're a white European. I don't care what the word it is to describe your physical appearance. If you are guilty or a suspect in a crime, people in law enforcement have the right to describe you as you are. And that's the thing that held back law enforcement in England, because they were afraid of being branded racists. How utterly appalling is that? In their minds, therefore, to be called a rapist, it's better to be a rapist than to be a racist. Do you get that? Do you get that message? Is that not loud and clear? And so 1,400 girls had to suffer the political correctness of a few bureaucrats who decided they didn't want to stick their necks out because they didn't want to be called names. Guess what? It happened 
anyway. Since the news broke, one whistleblower has had tweeted out that he or she, we don't have identified who it is, has been ordered to racial, cultural, whatever else, sensitivity training. Can you believe that? Because she described, did exactly, he or she just did exactly what they were afraid of. I guess the reality was too hard to take, but the reality came out anyway. But, you know, I think there's no good thing that happened in this at all. How long it went, how, how people were afraid to speak out, and so thousands of girls were exploited and raped and mistreated and abused. And guess how? Guess what the race of the girls that were exploited were? Now, we know the men were Pakistani, ethnic, ethnically, you know, their, their cultural background. Guess what color the girls were? Thomas, do you know? Did I lose you? Nope, Leticia. I was on <laughs> mute. Sorry about that. Okay. So, so what? What was your question, comment to me? I I asked if since the men, the men were that were arrested with the right. fourteen hundred having exploited and sexually raped and trafficked fourteen hundred girls over about a sixteen period, year period of time. Guess what the race. Of predominantly of the girls that were trafficked. What were they? You know? You want me to... Um, I'm going to say... Um, I'm going to say black? Is that a joke? You told are me you No. I'm, I'm just asking, are you joking? No, I'm not joking. Okay. No, they were not black. The 1,400 girls that were exploited, raped, and sexually abused and trafficked were predominantly white. You know what? You have a good point there. And you're talking about in this nation, right? Well, this was happening in in the U.K., Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. I stand corrected. But you know what? You bring up a good issue. And and let's just go here for a minute in our last few minutes cuz and this is the topic that that need that we need to address eventually. Because the the exploitation basically what it is, it is slavery. Everybody wants to get in the uproar when a conservative mentions slavery, black liberals want to say, oh, don't, man, don't say that because our ancestors and blah, blah, blah. Here's the truth of the matter. Slavery is still going on today. You have exactly. white slavery that is going on in Africa. In <clears throat> Africa. How ironic yeah. is that? Muslim yep. nation kidnapping white women. Exactly. Now, you are absolutely right, and I stand corrected in that, but at the end of the day, because we are 100% unequivocally pro-life, we don't mince words, so therefore, to everyone who's listening, you better understand, we will take on this issue because we don't care 
don't tell us that you have a certain viewpoint, but then you're okay with white people being sold into slavery. But yet you're going to cry about, oh, this slavery, it was bad. And I'm speaking directly to our black civil rights leaders. Because the difference between you all and Martin Luther King Jr. is that he fought for the rights of all people. Granted, our history books don't talk about that much. So, at the end of the day, you have white slavery. You have white girls, white women, young white boys who are being sold into sex trafficking by a bunch of arrogant pieces of trash who, in my view, need to be erased from this planet. That's my viewpoint, but I won't digress any further because nobody deserves to have their life and their humanity degraded. Be, be, oh, my God. Letitia, you better take it away because I'm really about to go off. So. Well, I, 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 yeah. I would hope that more people would become upset, and not just become upset, but know why they're upset at exactly. instances of this happening to anybody. The, the issue is that, I mean, people like to frame history as though all the white people are, are horrible and all the, all the you know, hor- horrible to all the non-white people. I mean, that's what we are now. Right. From, from, from two weeks ago, I've decided to change all my my vocabulary. We're not black people or white people. We're non-black people and non-white people. <laughs> that's a good view. That's, that's a good what point. we are now. That's we're a good point. That's a good point. And it's become right. as ridiculous as that. It's, it's ridiculous, and it's become ridiculous. Right. And it's that ridiculousness, that political correctness, that it allowed a case like uh, the Great Britain uh, Rotherham scandal to go on for years and years, and it it gets even worse than that. There was a couple that um, whose daughter was being trafficked. They knew where she was. They knew she had been kidnapped. She had called them asking for help. She had called the police. They had called the police, and the police, what did they do? They ran the parents off. Right. Is this the the case? Letitia, is this the one where... They were afraid of offending Muslims, so they didn't want to um, go arrest the Muslims that was doing yes. what they were doing. Is that That's the case? That's the one. That's the one. And and it's not an isolated case either. It's not an isolated incident. This is what's happening. There are there are areas. And France is famous for this since a few years ago. There are there are whole communities, whole ghettos. Right. Of, of Muslims that patrol and make police and all that stuff, their own neighborhood. But what it is, you think, okay, in politics of today, does that sound like a good idea? Let me tell you, it is not a good idea because there is more crime and more exploitation of women and girls that goes on in those communities than there ever was in England or France ever before. This is the type of thing that goes on in the Middle East. They have imported, imported it and legalized it. And this is this is what I'm talking about, Letitia. See, I'm honestly I'm tired of talking. I'm ready to fight. And and I mean physically fight. I'm tired. Nobody 
in Washington, D.C., you look at the buffoon who's our current president, can't even stand up, barely mention our second journalist who got his head chopped off. I'm right. sick and tired. You know, and everybody is so worried about being politically correct. One advantage that I have of being a black conservative, I don't give a rip what anybody says to me because at the end of the day, I could take it and, and put it right back in the face of the liberal. I've been there. I experienced the trash, you know, of what's been said said to me. I spoke at a Tea Party event on 9-11 in 2012. After I was done speaking, a white-haired liberal, white guy, out of all the people there, because I was the only black person there, you know, he um, pulled me aside. Oh, here it goes. Here we go. 2012. <laughs> he pulled me aside and verbally attacked me. I, he called or, you no, he, yeah, he, he actually did. He went off on me, put his finger in my face, and <laughs> I got so mad. Some, some of the other Tea Partiers um, looked at him and said, dude, you better leave now. I was hot. I mean, <laughs> it was as if the liberal was like, what are you doing stepping off the plantation? Exactly, and that's exactly what how, and he, that's how he treated you. He didn't treat exactly. you like you were a human right. being that had your own opinion, and that right. you were, even if he disagreed. You know, this is the difference between the, we as conservatives the, and right. right. But Leticia, what? here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. I can disagree with anybody. I have friends who are liberals that I disagree with, but mm-hmm. they respect me for who I am. But there are a lot of liberals who want to do the trashing and the bashing because they can't debate on the merits of their arguments because they know their arguments suck. Right. So, you know, at the end of the day, what it boils down to, the reason why I'm ticked off is because, you know, this crap, you know, when they talk about, well, the white people did all this, that dishonors the memory of the tens of thousands of men and women, white, and I'm not talking the Civil War, I mean before the Civil War, who lost their lives helping the free slaves on the Underground Railroad. And right. in that, to me, I'm, if I'm going to be consistent, I'm going to be consistent. I don't care what race or what culture you are. Because it's different cultures, one race, the human race. So and therefore, right I don't care that. what culture you are, if you cared enough to lay down your life for people, you deserve to. And I think we lost the audio there on Thomas. But the point is well taken. If, if right. we cannot be whole, complete pro-life persons, here on this program unless we see the value of every person equally regardless of skin color we're not going to play that game so a person like phoenix colden is just as valuable uh to us and we want to see her return and restored to her family just as much as 1400 white girls from the uh, from great britain 
that was an injustice on them, all of them, no matter what. And it doesn't matter. Okay, I, I'm, I'm done with that. I want to get to our, uh, I want to get to the stupidest thing ever um, today because you don't want to miss it. Let's let's just go for it because it just caps off everything. We talked a lot about our president and the things that he has misjudged this week in executing the war on terror and ending, and he supposedly ended the war in Iraq, even though it was not his idea. And, I mean, I scratch my head, you scratch your head, we all wanted to know what the heck he meant by that, but, you know, did he really? Was it really not his idea? Well, For the first time yeah. in nine years, there are no Americans fighting in Iraq. Four years ago, I promised to end the war in Iraq. We did. Four years ago, I promised to end the war in Iraq. I did. Four years ago, I promised to end the war in Iraq, and I did. I told you we'd end the war in Iraq, we did. I said we'd end the Iraq war, we did. I told you I'd end the war in Iraq, and we did. I ended the war in Iraq as I promised. In 2008, I promised we'd end the war in Iraq, we've ended it. I was able to keep my promise and end the war in Iraq. In 2008, I promised we would end the war in Iraq, and we've ended it. The war in Iraq is over. The war in Iraq is over from ending the war in Iraq. That's why I ended the war in Iraq for the first time in nine years. There are no Americans fighting in Iraq. President, do you have any uh, second thoughts about uh, pulling all ground troops out of Iraq? You know, what, what I just find interesting is uh, the degree to which this, this issue keeps on coming up as if this was my decision. You know, technically, I think he could be correct. If it's not his decision to end the war in Iraq, it was the power behind the throne, and uh, he could be pulling a technicality on us but hey you know what who was elected potus it was you mr president and i that i mean for anybody to look at what has transpired in the last few months with all the beheadings and the exploitation the, the sex trafficking the forced conversions the starvation on top of the mountain etc isis spreading all across the two states in the Middle East, calling themselves an Islamic state. Um, yeah, we would have to be the stupidest people ever to believe that there is no culpability here. Yeah, and so that is the stupidest thing ever. Come back next week. We're going to have a smashing show again, talking about really serious matters, spreading the ethics of pro-life in every single direction we can. We want you to come back. Uh, visit our Facebook page, Facebook, uh, True Life Fridays Radio, and our website, truelifefridaysradio.com. And, hey, give us a like, give us a comment. We would love to see you on air. Have a good night, everybody.